and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 26th through Tuesday, the 31st, feature guest conductor Esapeka Solonen and violinist Pekka Kusisto in a program including Mother Goose by Ravel, the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of Bryce Desner's Violin Concerto, and Igor Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Bruce Desner's Violin Concerto, a work lasting about 24 minutes. It's hard to think of a composer today with a more diverse resume than Bryce Desner. In 2018, The National, the rock band that he helped found as its guitarist, arranger, and co-principal songwriter, picked up a Grammy Award. Desner's film scoring credits, often shared with his brother Aaron Desner, include The Two Popes, Alejandro González Inaritu's The Revenant, and last year's Cyrano and Come On, Come On. His orchestrations appear on recent albums by Bon Iver, Paul Simon, and Taylor Swift. He's one of eight San Francisco Symphony collaborative partners appointed when Esapeka Solonen became the orchestra's music director. He's also artist-in-residence at London's South Bank Center and with the Frankfurt Radio Symphony Orchestra. And... He is one of our most accomplished and frequently commissioned composers. His recent works include a concerto for two pianos, written for Katya and Marielle Lebec, a trombone concerto, the Schrick Trio, composed for Carnegie Hall, in honor of Steve Reich. His music has not been just essential to my life and work as a composer, but it was an inspiration for me becoming a musician to begin with. And Triptych, Eyes for One on Another, a theater piece integrating the photographs of Robert Maplethorpe. Last year alone saw these new scores, Impermanence for the Australian String Quartet and Sydney Dance Company, Circles for Bandoneon and String Quartet, and the Violin Concerto premiered in Frankfurt, Germany in October, given its first U.S. performances in San Francisco later that month, and performed in Chicago this week. Desner's musical upbringing was eclectic. His father was a jazz drummer. We listened to Keith Jarrett, Charles Lloyd, Pat Metheny, he told Gramophone last year. He started playing the flute, but gave that up for guitar. Although he was at first drawn to Renaissance composers and Bach, everything changed when he was exposed to music by Reich and Brian Eno. After The National was formed in 1999, his life intertwined two different strands as a rock musician who was earning his bachelor's and master's degree in music at Yale University. Since then, his mission is what binds it all together. I don't have an agenda, Desner says. I want to take the audience on a journey. And here is Bryce Desner himself on his violin concerto. It is an endeavor as old as civilization to set out on a road that is supposed to take you to the very end of things if you keep going, so a pilgrim sets off. One thing is certain, one item is constant in the set of beliefs with which he travels. It is simply that when you reach the place called the end of the world, you fall off into the water. Anne Carson, The Anthropology of Water. My Violin Concerto was partly inspired by Anne Carson's essay, The Anthropology of Water, which reimagines the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. I now live in the Basque region of France, just beyond the Spanish border on the Atlantic coast, which sits directly on the pilgrimage route. In Carson's essay, a modern young woman walks the Camino del Santiago, the way of St. James. Each diary entry opens with a date, 
a place on the pilgrimage route where many villages are near where we live, and a quote from an earlier literary pilgrim, Mitsune Basho. I spent much of 2020 and 21 at home during the pandemic, often taking long hikes through the oak forests with my four-year-old son. I considered how journeys by foot create a different connection to the land and environment in which we live. Something about the practice of composing for orchestra and writing a violin concerto felt at times like a musical analog to this pilgrimage, taking a journey that so many have taken before and in which so many other musical pilgrims have left some of the most iconic and timeless music. So what does it mean for a contemporary artist to make this same journey? And how do these artifacts left behind by other artists inform our own course? Why are we drawn to a path so many before us have taken and often? What could I have to say that could be new or specific to my own journey? These were thoughts in my mind as I composed this concerto for my dear friend Pekka Quisisto, also thinking of the amazing conductors and orchestras who would perform it. I've also taken musical inspiration from the sea, a constant source for many artists, and one which has inspired pieces of mine, such as St. Caroline by the Sea and Wave Movements. In the concerto, I acknowledge the history and form of the concerto, loosely functioning in three movements with a cadenza between the first and second, while the second and third movements play almost like one large section. The whole piece is played ataka, with movements linking to one another without a break. I chose to work with a smaller size orchestra, which also suits the music well, I think. It embraces elements of the heroic form of the violin concerto with moments of intense interplay between soloist and orchestra. But in other ways, I subvert the traditional form. The solo violin drives large sections of string tutti in the first movement, while in the second movement, this unison material distills into an individualist polyphony where each instrument, including every string player in the orchestra, has their own solo, thus inverting the traditional relationships of soloist to orchestra. The third movement reflects back on this pilgrim's journey with wave-like gestures in the orchestra, giving way to a more driving and pulsing finale. In Pekka Coisisto, the violinist for whom my concerto was written and dedicated, I have an ideal collaborator, having previously composed a violin solo, Ornament and Crime, in 2015 for him. He's long been a champion of my music, both as director and chamber musician, and he works at the highest level with a wide range of classical repertory and is equally hungry for new works. He has a broad knowledge and appreciation of music beyond the walls of the classical genre and brings a creative whimsy to everything he touches. Bryce Desner on his Violin Concerto and Notes by Philip Huscher. And now, on to Igor Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements, a work lasting about 22 minutes. No composer has given us more perspectives on a symphony than Stravinsky. He wrote a symphony at the very beginning of his career. It is his Opus One. But Stravinsky quickly became famous as the composer of three ballet scores, Petrushka, The Firebird, and The Rite of Spring, and he spent the next few years composing for the theater and the opera house. 
When, in 1920, he finally returned to writing music for an orchestra on the concert stage, he composed the Symphonies of Wind Instruments, which isn't a symphony in the classical sense of the word. Stravinsky intentionally uses the plural, alluding to the original meaning of the word, which implies instruments sounding together. With the Symphony of Psalms, his great choral work of 1930, Stravinsky was again playing word games, and perhaps, as has been suggested, he used the term partly to placate his publisher, who reminded him after the score was finished that he had been commissioned to write a symphony. And then, at last, a true symphony. In 1938, Mrs. Robert Wood's Bliss, together with Mrs. John Alden Carpenter and several of her friends in Chicago, asked Stravinsky to compose something to honor the 50th anniversary of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in the 1940-41 season. To celebrate a milestone in the life of a great American orchestra, Stravinsky decided to tackle the standard by writing a symphony in C in the four orthodox movements scored for a Beethoven orchestra. Two years later, Stravinsky began sketches for this Symphony in Three Movements, his final essay on what a symphony can mean. From time to time, he regretted not calling it simply three symphonic movements. In the Symphony in C, Stravinsky had enjoyed masquerading as Haydn, but the new Symphony in Three Movements is much more a work of its own time. In a program note written for the premiere in 1946, Stravinsky asserted that the symphony was absolute music, although touched by this arduous time of sharp and shifting events, of despair and hope, of continual torments, of tension, and at last secession and relief. Two years later, he wrote a letter to the composer Ingolf Dahl insisting that if passages from the program notes are used to imply extra musical connotations in my work, I have to disclaim any responsibility for such interpretations. This was characteristic Stravinsky, and even though the composer's followers had heard words to this effect time and time again, they always suspected that there was more to the story. Finally, in Dialogues and a Diary, published in 1963, Stravinsky wrote openly about the genesis of the symphony. Those comments follow. Here is Igor Stravinsky on the symphony in three movements. The symphony was written under the impression of world events. I will not say that it expresses my feelings about them, but only that without participation of what I think of as my will, they excited my musical imagination and the impressions that activated me were not general or ideological, but specific. Each episode in the symphony is linked in my imagination with a specific cinematographic impression of war. The third movement even contains the genesis of a war plot, though I accepted it as such only after the composition was completed. The beginning of the movement is partly and in some inexplicable way a musical reaction to the newsreels and documentaries I had seen of goose-stepping soldiers, the square march beat, the brass band instrumentation, the grotesque crescendo in the tuba. These are all related to those abhorrent pictures. Though what I call my impressions of world events were derived almost entirely from films, the root of my indignation was a personal experience. One day in Munich, in 1932, I saw a squad of brown shirts enter the street below the balcony of my room in the Berische Hof and assault a group of civilians. 
The latter tried to defend themselves with street benches, but they were soon crushed beneath these clumsy shields. The police eventually arrived, of course, but the attackers had all dispersed. That same night, I went with Vera de Posse and the photographer Eric Schall to a small Allais restaurant. As we dined, a gang in swastika armbands entered the room. One of them began to talk insultingly about Jews and to aim his remarks in our direction. With the afternoon street fight still in our eyes, we hurried to leave, but the now shouting Nazi and his Mirodons followed, cursing and threatening us the while. Schall protested, and at that they began to kick and to hit him. Mr. Bose ran to a corner, found a policeman, and told him a man was being killed, but this information did not arouse him to any action. We were rescued by a timely taxi, and though Shaw was battered and bloody, we went directly to a police court. The magistrate was as little perturbed with our story, however, as the policeman had been. In Germany today, such things happen every minute, was all he said. But to return to the plot of the movement, in spite of contrasting episodes such as the cannon for bassoons, the march music predominates until the fugue, which is the stasis and the turning point. The immobility at the beginning of this fugue is comic, I think, and so to me was the overturned arrogance of the Germans when their machine failed. The exposition of the fugue and the end of the symphony are associated in my plot with the rise of the Allies and the final, rather too commercial, D-flat sixth chord instead of the expected C in some way tokens my extra exuberance in the Allied triumph. The figure was developed from the rumba in the timpani part in the introduction to the first movement. It is somehow inexplicably associated in my imagination with the movement of war machines. The first movement was likewise inspired by a war film, this time of scorched earth tactics in China. The middle part of the movement was conceived as a series of instrumental conversations to accompany a series of cinematographic scenes showing the Chinese people scratching and digging in their fields. The music for clarinet, piano, and strings that mounts in intensity and volume until the explosion of the three chords, and that then begins all over again, was all associated in my mind with this Chinese documentary. The formal substance of the symphony, Three Symphonic Movements would be a more exact title, exploits the idea of counterplay between several types of contrasting elements. One such contrast, the most obvious, is that of harp and piano, the principal instrumental protagonists. Each has a large obligato role and a whole movement to itself, and only at the turning point fugue the Nazi cœur de pension, the abrupt end without expected results, are the two heard together and alone. Program notes by Igor Stravinsky and by Philip Huscher on Stravinsky's Symphony in Three Movements. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.